Good morning. Hello. Glad to have you here. All of you in the chair closet, in the prayer room. Downstairs, I see you. Okay, there you go. All right, good. I can hear you. It's good. Uh, we're glad that you're all here with us today. Um, my name is Ken. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Campus House, and we are going through the book of 1 Peter on Sundays this semester. And 1 Peter 1, verse 3, gives us our theme, actually, for the year. It's on the banner in the hallway when you go up and down the stairs here. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 says, Praise be to God the Father, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Living hope. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, this living hope very much affects the way that we live, and as we read through 1 Peter, we are paying attention to who God is calling us to become. And so... Uh, each week, we're talking about becoming a people of. So today, we're going to talk about becoming a people of mission. We talked about becoming a people of honor and freedom, a people of purpose, a people of holiness. Today, we are talking about becoming a people of mission. Peter was writing to encourage believers who were suffering. And that is a theme that runs throughout the letter. Uh, and today, we're going to look at 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 22. And we'll see that to become a people of mission, to become a people in a place where uh, it's really not your own, where you're, you're in exile, you're in a place that's not your own home. As believers, we live in this world, but it's really not our world. We've, we've been born again into a new kingdom. This kingdom, this earth here now is not really ours anymore as believers. And so we're going to see that to become a, pe to become a people of mission we're going to be called to respond to evil and to respond to insult in a certain way. Uh, and we're going to divide up the passage into three sections today, uh, verses 8 through 12. We're going to see that our response is to live well with each other uh, and with everyone. Uh, verses 13 through 17, we're going to see the importance of us to, uh, being willing to suffer and being willing to share. And then verses 18 through 22, our response is going to be to trust God, to trust Christ. So uh, before we jump into the verses, let me uh, say a word of prayer real quick. Lord, um, thank you for the people that you have brought here today. You know what you have You have planned ahead of time what you want to say to them. It might have nothing to do with anything that comes out of my mouth, but if it does, Lord, I pray, whether it's from my mouth or just from your spirit in them, through your word, would we listen? Jesus, would we hear what you have to say to us today? you help us to be in a place to receive from you. 
<laughs> you're always so ready, ready and willing to give, and we often are not ready to receive, and so I just pray that we would receive from you today. Because you are a good, you are a good father, and you give good gifts, and um, thank you for the good gift of your word and the truth that it, we find in it. Speak to our hearts today by your spirit. It's in your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be 1 Peter 3. I'm going to have it on the screen, but you can follow along. There's Bibles at the end of your row. You can look on your phone, whatever you want to do, however, whatever's best for you to pay attention. Uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because, this, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter starts out this section of Scripture saying, finally, finally, this is a transition. We are transitioning. Peter is transitioning in the letter. We have been the last couple of weeks talking about submission our submission as believers for Christ's sake. He is our example for submission, and we are to submit to as citizens, as servants, as wives, as husbands. We are to submit as Christ submits to his Father's will. So we're, he, Peter's wrapping this part up. So he says, finally, all of you, all of you is everyone, all the Christians that Peter is writing to. He says, this is how you're to live with one another. And he gives five traits to keep that will keep the unity among the believers as they live out their calling as exiles, as people living in a place that is not their own, as a countercultural society. These five things, he encourages them to live out, to, to live well. <clears throat> so, the first is to be like-minded. I want to look at each of them really briefly. To be like-minded. Uh, other translations say unity of mind, to live in harmony, to be of one mind. It's basically sharing a, a common heritage of faith or tradition, and our like-mindedness in Christ is uh, the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. And to be like-minded, we have to kind of go back to, be, to submission a little bit. Uh, we have to be willing to submit ourselves to others for Christ's sake. When we don't do that, when there's not a, when there's not a willingness, when we don't have a, we're not free. We talked last couple weeks about being free to submit. When we're not free to submit to each other, to one another, then there's misunderstanding, then there's hostility, and that divides the Christian community. These, this first verse in particular is about the Christian community, how we are to be together. So we're to be like-minded, <clears throat> or be sympathetic, basically to seek another's good and to enter into another's needs and concerns, to... Um, Rejoice with those who rejoice. To mourn with those who mourn is the way Paul puts it in Romans 12. In 1 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. One, if one member suffers, then we all suffer. We are in this together. So we need to have sympathy for one another. We need to seek one another's good and then also enter into one another's needs and concerns. So we're to be like-minded. We're to be sympathetic. We're to love one another. Other translations say have brotherly love. Or love each other as brothers and sisters. And this word, love one another in the NIV, and, then, and compassionate are both Greek words that have to do specifically with family obligations. 
Typically, we're used when talking about your obligation as a family member. And I like that Peter uses these words in particular, connected to family, because we are a family. We have, if we have a new birth, which we read in verse Peter 1, verse 3, our, our verse for the semester, we are a family. We are a new family. You don't get to pick your family. And some of you don't like that because your family is hard. But you don't get to pick this family either. We're all in this together. We, and we're to, to love one another. We are all adopted kids. All of us. Those of us that have, have made a decision to make Jesus the Lord of our life. We are his children. And We've been loved by him, our father, our good father in heaven, and we're to show that same love to our siblings, to each other. Compassionate is the next word, or tenderhearted, as some of the translations say. Another family word, again, a word used for family obligation. The Greeks associated that word with like your inner guts, actually. And it talks, Jesus was, very, was compassionate. It talks a lot in the Gospels about Jesus being compassionate. He was, had compassion on the crowds. He had compassion on the sick. The father... Uh, had compassion on the prodigal son. The good Samaritan had compassion. The Bible links our inner organs specifically with mercy and concern. We're to have compassion for one another. So like, be like-minded, be sympathetic, be, love one another, be compassionate, and then be humble is the last one. Or to have a humble mind or a humble attitude. That Greek word for the listeners then would have been derogatory. To be humble is not something that you strove to be. Humility was disdained. It was, it was countercultural. It was a sign of weakness. If you can't defend your honor, then you were looked down upon. And so to be humble was not something that anyone in that, those times cared to seek. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So these are the five things, being like-minded, being sympathetic, loving, loving one another, being compassionate, and humble. All five of those things work together, and what's cool is that they're very connected to Jesus' teaching and also very connected to lots of other teachings in the New Testament. Romans 12, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, Philippians 2. I'm not going to read all those, but they're very similar. They're, they're parallels. They're all teaching the apostles. Jesus' apostles are all teaching the same things. We've been talking in the last couple of weeks that we're free. We're free to live these things out to be like-minded, to be sympathetic, to love one another, to be compassionate, to be humble. And that's how we live well with each other, okay? That's how we live well with each other. Then Paul talks about how we can live well with others. In verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. This is like Peter's rule for life. Don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult. Again, defending your honor would have been very important and normative in that time. It would be normal for you to defend yourself, to repay evil for evil. So what Paul, Peter is saying is very surprising, would be very surprising. But he doesn't just stop at don't repay evil for evil. He goes further. Because you can not retaliate. If someone does something to you, you can, you know, clench your teeth and not say anything. 
But man, you're thinking it. It's in your head. There's lots of things going on in your head. And inwardly, you still have this desire for the person's harm or, or ill will. And Peter says, no, we can't, even, we can't stop there. We don't repay evil for evil, but we actually repay evil with blessing. The Greek word comes from our word eulogy, to bless, to publicly speak well of someone. If you go to a eulogy, someone's passed away, no matter how terrible of a person that person was, do they talk about those bad things at the eulogy? No, they speak good things about that, those people. That's where we get our word eulogy, but to bless, to be a blessing in the Bible is to invoke God's favor on someone. So someone does evil to you, you're not to repay, do evil back to them, but you're actually supposed to bless them. Or to, another word would be to benefit them. You call on God's power to benefit them. Why? Why would you do that? This person has insulted you. It says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. To this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. It's, it's kind of backwards and the wording's a little bit weird. What, what Peter is saying is, to this you were called. You were called to inherit a blessing through Christ. Because of that, you don't repay evil with evil. You repay evil with a blessing. We inherit a blessing. We inherit a blessing. You know when you get an inheritance, someone passes away, you get an inheritance. You didn't do anything to earn that. You didn't do anything to earn your grandpa's money. He died, and, he, and it was, you inherited it. It was an absolute gift. So we don't bless those who do evil to us, so we get blessing. We already have the blessing in Jesus, and that enables us, the fact that we have the blessing, that enables us, it propels us to bless those who do evil to us. We seek their salvation and good, not just well-wishing, but we actually do something for them. Jesus said in Luke 6, but to you who, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your enemies, Jesus says. And love here is not some emotional attachment that's like greater than liking. Love is acting rightly toward your enemies. And Peter's word to, to be a blessing to those who insult you. I read this passage, from, uh, this, this passage from Luke because I think it helps us to understand what being a blessing is. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It shows us that there's action involved with blessing. There. You love, you pray, you give. That's how you bless someone who does evil against you. We are called not to begrudgingly comply, but to be confident, to be free in our new birth, who we are in Jesus, because that will enable us, when we are walking in that freedom, it will enable us to speak and act out uh, toward our enemies from a heart that desires their blessedness, not their cursing. 
So Peter is calling us to live well with each other. Within the family, verse 8, and then anyone outside the family. I know in your family you can have some people speak evil of you, but Peter is talking about everyone. This is how you're to treat everyone. And he expounds on his point in verse 9, the next three verses. He quotes Psalm 34 here. Verse 10, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he's just backing up what he's saying about not repaying evil for evil, because doing evil separates you from God. You want to see good days? Then follow God's way of life. Live well. He'll be with you. If not, he won't. But in Christ, in Jesus, he is with you all of the time. He is with you, even when you don't <laughs> do these things. Paul, Peter's just trying to make a point. We, don't, we shouldn't repay evil with evil. But as we see in the next few verses, living well, not repaying evil for evil, and even blessing doesn't guarantee us exemption from insult, evil, or suffering. Verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So the answer to Peter's question in verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? No one, right? Why would anyone harm me if I'm doing good? There should be no harm done to me. Who would want to do me harm for doing good? Well, maybe someone who has a different definition of what good is would want to do you harm. Even though God's eyes are on you, as the verses right before said, it doesn't mean you won't suffer. We will have persecution and ill treatment in this life. Suffering can and will come to those of us who do good and follow Jesus. Peter says if, in verse 14, if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You are blessed. If you suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. You are a privileged recipient of divine favor. You have God's favor. You're blessed if you suffer for what is, what is right. That doesn't sound right to us, does it? That doesn't make any sense. Because you don't go on social media and see posts like this. Yesterday, I let a guy pull out in front of me on State Street, and five other guys pulled out in front of him. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> I asked my roommates to stop gossiping about our friend, and now none of them will talk to me. Hashtag blessed. I didn't cheat on my exam. I absolutely could have cheated on my exam. It would have been easy. I wouldn't have gotten caught. But I didn't cheat, and I failed that dumb exam. Hashtag blessed. I wouldn't go to the bars with my friends on Friday, and now I'm home alone with nothing to do. Hashtag blessed. I shared briefly about how God has changed my life with a friend, and he laughed in my face. Hashtag blessed. No, you don't read these things on social media. One, hashtag blessed is, drives me insane. 
on real social media. This is actually true, these things. But no one's ever going to say these things. It doesn't feel like blessing when we make good decisions and things don't go our way or we suffer for those decisions. Maybe you experience some of that marginalization socially or alienation because from the people around you because of your faith or because of the way you express your faith. Or simply just living well, maybe even you find some pushback. Suffering for doing good in this country is not going to get you martyred. Suffering for your faith is not going to get you killed in this country. And we should be thankful for that. But we make sacrifices and we make decisions because of our faith, and there is suffering. But because of that, we are blessed. Suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Jesus declared those people to be blessed who suffer for the sake of righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are those who, per who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. But I'm still alone in my room on a Friday night. Or I still failed that exam. Or all six of those dumb cars still went out in front of me. You're blessed. Encountering hostility toward our Christian faith comes in lots of different forms. And even though it means we're blessed, it will definitely test our faith. And Peter knows that. That's who he's writing to. He knows they're suffering. They're struggling. So how, how should they respond? How do we respond? We need to be willing. So we need to live well. We talked about that already. And we need to be willing. We need to be willing to suffer for doing good. And in our, willingness to, in our willingness to suffer for doing good, we need to not be afraid and we need to revere Christ in our hearts. Peter says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. It's a paraphrase of Isaiah where it says, do not fear what they fear. Too often, we fear man's reaction to us rather than God's reaction. We must exchange the fear of man with the fear of the Lord in our hearts. Peter said in Acts 5 in a speech uh, where he was speaking, I believe it was to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. And that could have meant his life. They were telling him to stop preaching about Jesus, and he said, look, I cannot obey you. I have to obey God over men. But we too often fear man before we fear the Lord. Psalm 56 says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, Lord. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid, what can mere mortals do to me? We need to not fear man, but God. 
takes us to which takes us to Paul's next point. So in our willingness to suffer for doing good, we need to not be afraid of man. We also need to revere Christ in our hearts. The verse says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, that the NIV says. If you other translations, there are lots of different translations for this. Set apart Christ as Lord. Honor Christ, revere Christ, worship Christ as Lord of your life. Hallowed be your name. That's not one of the translations. That's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, though. In your heart, set Christ apart. As the fear of man fades and diminishes and our awareness of the glory of God increases, we surrender more and more of our heart over to his lordship in our life. We are often very thankful and willing to accept Jesus as our Savior, but a lot of times we hesitate to make him our Lord. Peter's a great example for us because he didn't <laughs> set Christ apart at first. He had some, some, some bad moments before Jesus left the earth, one of which specifically denying Jesus, that he even knew who Jesus was three times before, after Jesus was arrested, before he was crucified. But then we see him in Acts. He is an absolutely different person. Peter scorns anything men might do to him. He doesn't care. He's, he slept peacefully in prison. He's asleep. The door's open. He's asleep. He accuses his accusers. And Edward, Edmund Clowney is a commentator, and he wrote um, that Peter's secret was not simply that he had been with Jesus. Peter had been with Jesus, physically been with Jesus, but his secret was that the Lord Jesus was with him. He was very aware of that because he, was, he revered Christ in his heart. He'd experienced the freedom in Jesus to not be afraid of man and to fear God and to revere him, to honor Christ, to set Christ apart in his heart. So we, not, not only need to be, we need to be willing to suffer for doing good and not be afraid of man and revere Christ in our heart. And then we also need to be willing to share the reason for the hope that we have the hope that is in us. Verse 15 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And the NIV actually has there's a, there's a period in that first sentence of verse 15. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord then always be prepared. The, the translation really is, is it doesn't, there's not a new sentence. The ESV translates a little more, it a little more accurately, word for word, and it says it this way, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, comma, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Our devotion to Christ setting him apart in our hearts, honoring him, that's what makes us ready, makes us prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in us. We have been reborn into a living hope through Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And sometimes this hope separates us from non-believers and can invite conflict with them. But our faith shouldn't close doors to relationships. Our faith should open doors to conversation. Our faith shouldn't isolate us from others, but should allow us to live openly in an unbelieving world, a world that's not our own anymore, and be ready to explain why we believe what we believe when the opportunity presents itself. We don't have to be intimidated because when Christ is at the center, he will guide us. And when you know and have the hope, that hope is in the center of you, then that your willingness to share will grow. How can you be prepared to give a defense? That sounds very intimidating. I have to be prepared to give an offense. And I think uh, a lot of us, if you grew up in church or you've been around faith very long, you've heard these verses. What do I have to do to be prepared? Well, I think you can ask yourself a couple questions, and I'll ask you those. Do you, actually, do, you should ask yourself, do I have hope in this life and the next? Do I, really? And do I know what that hope is? Can I give a reason for it? Maybe write that down. And that's great. And you could be prepared with all of that. We have been studying the book of John uh, in community groups. And um, the first chapter, uh, I was struck by the way that people came to Jesus. Um, some people w- w- ran into him, and then two, two of them go uh, separately and get a friend or a brother to come to him. And all, all, all they had to do was literally, like, physically, because Jesus was here physically, physically bring him to Jesus, and that was it. That's all. Jesus did the rest. Philip, Philip brought Nathaniel. I might be getting this wrong. Philip brought Nathaniel. And Jesus says some crazy thing about seeing him under a fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, oh, you are the son of God. Andrew goes and gets Philip. I might be, Andrew goes and gets Simon Peter. Peter. Simon, who becomes Peter comes to Jesus. He literally just brings him to him, and Jesus says, you are no longer Simon, you are Peter, which means rock, because he knew Peter. He knew Nathaniel. He saw them. That's all they had to do was bring them. That's all we have to do, friends. Jesus does the work. We don't have to be intimidated. We don't have to have a whole thing planned out. Just talk about your life and your, your, your life with Jesus. Says so you have to be ready to give a defense, and there's a difference. Probably, there's a, definitely a difference between giving a defense and being defensive. And sometimes, if you're under verbal attack, it can feel like you are on the defensive. So, how do you keep your cool in the moment when your faith is being questioned and riddled with questions and maybe even angry questions? Well, Peter tells us with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Gentleness and respect oftentimes is not words that you would use to describe conversations about faith. We are to 
enter those conversations with gentleness and respect. There's a humility for, uh, in, uh, for us. And it's much more than just a politeness. It's a, it's a fear of the Lord. And actually, the word respect, gentleness and respect, that word respect actually is fear. And it's reflecting our attitude toward God. Colossians 4, Paul writes, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We must reflect humility and respect to the hearer, whoever we're talking to. But that respect and humility is rooted in our attitude toward God. And our hope that, it, our hope that is in us provides both the courage for our witness and the content for our witness. So we have this hope, and that's what gives us courage to share it, but also it's what we have to share is this hope. And we're to share it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, Peter says. A clear conscience, I'm sorry, a clear conscience, verse 16. So the Holy Spirit brings our conscience before the Lord, and he clears it. We're free from condemnation. Hebrews 10 says that our hearts have been sprinkled to keep us from a guilty conscience. So in Christ, we are free. We are justified. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. What Peter's talking about is obedient saints, to be clear, have a clear conscience. And our conscience, I think some of it needs to be clear of any guilt that we share out of guilt or obligation. If we're sharing our faith out of guilt or obligation, then there's probably some fear there, and the people you're talking to aren't going aren't gonna to really buy it because it's not really coming from your heart honoring and revering the Lord. I think it's good for us to check our motivations when we share the gospel. I think we all feel, some of us, especially if you've grown up in the church, there's this obligation to doing it. But it's a lot different when you are actually connected to the hope and that you have actually have a desire for the other person to have the same hope. The conversation is different. As opposed to going into the conversation, well, I guess I got to tell you about Jesus. Actually, let me tell you how this man changed my life and can change your life. I think this is a small thing, but I like it. Um, do this with the gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I just like the phrase, good behavior in Christ. We, our, our behavior <laughs> cannot be good without Christ. We are in Christ. We are united with him. Our, any, anything righteous that we do is not from us. He gives us his life through his spirit in us. He, we, we, we are joined with the Lord's life through his spirit with us, in us. When we recognize that, when we realize that we aren't alone and we show the gospel to be true from our lives, we can show this new creation off to people. Through God's grace, people can see the reality of salvation through us. Even if it's not listened to right away, 
the truth will eventually come out and win. <laughs> Verse uh, 17. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Here this is again, same idea. Better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is kind of, a, this is an eschatological view, eschatological view uh, thinking into the, into the future, the end times, when all this is going to end. It's better to suffer now at the hands of men who we really shouldn't fear, if you remember, than to suffer judgment at the feet of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we don't have to fear that judgment. But if it's the will of God, it's, po- it's a possibility for us. It's not a certainty. We're going to have to suffer for doing good. And that's better for us than suffering for doing evil. Choosing to do good for what God is calling you to do, even if it's hard or difficult, is much better than the opposite. And our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ is grounded in his willingness to suffer for us. Look at verse 18. This is our last section of Scripture today. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Christ is our best example of verse 17. It's better to suffer doing good than for doing evil. If Christ suffered, which he did, he suffered, he died once for sins, the Verse 18, the NIV says suffered. Some translations say died. Either way, I think we can both agree that's suffering. Um, If Christ suffered and we follow in his footsteps, then purposeful and intentional suffering can be expected for us as well. And our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ is grounded in Christ's willingness to suffer for us. Verses 21 through 24 of chapter 2 talked about that. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And it's ironic in this letter, specifically from coming from Peter, that he, uh, this, it's so much about suffering, and that suffering is a blessing, and that it's important for us to suffer. Peter hated the idea of Jesus the Messiah suffering. He rebuked Jesus at one point. No, Je- no, you surely will not die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. P- Peter's kind of changed his tune. He understands now the purpose of suffering. Jesus sinned, it says, it, Jesus suffered, died once for sins, it says, once, so that we might be brought to God. He did not die just an undeserved death, but he actually, actually died a vicarious death on behalf of the unrighteous, on behalf of us. We talked about this a couple weeks ago at a line. In the Old Testament, there was this system with, with God and his people, and the priest would come, and they would... Uh, take these animals and they would kill these animals, they would sacrifice these animals for the sins of the people, for the unrighteous, which is all of them, everyone. And they would do this over and over and over again. And in Hebrews 10, it says they would just do it over and over again and it never took away sins, for real. Nothing ever changed in the unrighteous. They stayed unrighteous. But Jesus' death was different.
Christ also suffered once for sin, for sins. For sins, the same word they use in the Old Testament talking about those sacrifices in the sacrificial system. He brings us to God. The right, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. Without Christ, we are without hope. Our only hope is Him. And His resurrection brings triumph after suffering, which is the hope of all suffering Christians. His death was not the end, but was the once and for all sacrifice that atoned for our sin, that made a way for us to be in relationship with the Lord. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. We get to share in that. Look at these last uh, four verses. Verse 19. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Martin Luther, you may have heard of him, said this. A wonderful text is this these verses in particular, and a more obscure passage perhaps than in any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. Martin Luther said that. Several commentaries said this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament to make meaning of. There are three major interpretations that um, in, in these, some of these confusing words. Uh, one is that Jesus went to hell and preached the spirits of those who died in the flood in the time of Noah, giving them another chance to repent. Or maybe he just went to the righteous to get the righteous from the righteous that had died. Or maybe he went to actually just doom and condemn the wicked. That's one. Two, Christ's preaching was done by the Spirit through Noah, that actually Noah told people, look, the flood's coming, you're all going to die. Uh, and that was actually Jesus speaking through him. But he wasn't actually there. Jesus wasn't actually there in person. Or three, the spirits in prison are fallen angels and not humans. And Jesus goes to proclaim his victory over them. But it's not really clear when all of this happens. So uh, it brings up many questions and different answers to these questions, which, if you're into math, creates many permutations within these interpretations, depending on how you interpret each of the challenging words. Upwards, they said, to 180 unique interpretations. So I'm going to go through each one. Here we go. <laughs> I'm not going to go through each one. There's two, two things for this passage. I think, one, it is anchored in the preceding verses. Four, because also it is better to suffer doing good than to do evil. And Christ is our best example of that. And then suffering here is not the end or even the defeat that it may appear to be. Jesus is victorious over all, verse 22. Noah served as a, as a symbol of God's final salvation from sin and death. Actually, there's lots of symbols in the Old Testament 
that are preparing the way, getting our minds set for actual, the actual redemption that we, we have in Jesus, the final redemption we have in Jesus. God delivered Noah and he will deliver us. Exactly how Peter is using the comparison is not super clear. <laughs> he talks about water, right? Um, the water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Noah was saved. The eight, Noah's family, eight people in his family were saved through the water. The water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. But it, the, the water doesn't save you. It says in verse uh, 21, it it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. Uh, he's not talking, speaking of the outward application of water saving you, but of Jesus' resurrection. And it's not a cleansing, it's a union with Christ. Baptism doesn't remove all your moral filth, and so you don't have to worry about your morality or your behavior anymore, how you live. Baptism actually is a pledge to live in relationship with Jesus which would result in a good conscience before him. That's the Spirit sprinkling you to have a clear and good conscience, as Hebrews 10 says. The baptism, baptism, our baptism, is an outward sign of an inner reality. We participate with him in his death when we go under the water and his resurrection when we come up out of the water. Water was the means of God's judgment and salvation for those in Noah's time, and baptism in water is a symbol of, of our death, our judgment being carried out through Jesus and our salvation through him in coming up out of the water. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Romans 6, 4. Peter is trying to reassure believers that are suffering. Jesus ultimately overcomes God was in control in Noah's time, <clears throat> excuse me, and in control in Peter's time, and he's in control in our time. They were suffering. The people he's writing to were suffering. Judgment will come as it did to those in Noah's time, and when it does, the evil will be swept away, and those in Christ will be saved, as Noah and his family were saved. Jesus suffered and he died to bring us to where he is now. Christ We've been talking about submission the last couple of weeks. Christ submitted himself to death. And what's amazing, he, he submitted himself to death. Now everything is submitted to him. Verse 22. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. We, he is our example. We share in his sufferings, but we also get to share in his victory. There's a lot of Bibles out there. Um, my, this is a very long title for a Bible. It's the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible. Didn't know they had that, but they do. I found a, a quote from it that I really liked that I want to kind of leave us with today about this passage. It says, whatever befalls us, as long as we are looking to Christ as Lord, we cannot finally be harmed. The good life is the hard life of trusting Christ. The good life is the hard life of trusting Christ. 
In the gospel, we have been promised an unfathomable inheritance, ours freely for the taking, all because of the grace of God. This is the hope that is in us, through which we can quietly endure all things. We await an eternal glory that will make the hardships of this life, though genuinely painful, ultimately have the significance of a scratch on the penny of a millionaire. Our calling now is to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts, knowing that when eternity is secured by this commitment, all other concerns become slight in comparison. As we become people of mission, he's calling us to live well among each other and with everyone. He's calling us to be willing to suffer for doing what's good and to, be, to share the hope that is in us, that is Christ, and to trust him in that hope because some days are better than others. So we defer and we follow the one who suffered and died, but rose again so that we could have life. We follow him. We defer to him. So when we, when there's, when we suffer, we're not surprised because he suffered, but we can look ahead to his victory with anticipation. Oh, to grace, how great.